You'd open your Bibles, please, to Daniel chapter 11. A few years ago, the most famous psychic in the United States was a woman whose name was Jean Dixon. People looked to her to make predictions, frankly, most of which never came true. For example, on October 19, 1968, she predicted that Jacqueline Kennedy was not even considering getting married. The next day, she married Aristotle Onassis. She predicted that World War III would begin in 1954. She predicted that the Vietnam War would end in 1966 and that Castro would be banished from Cuba in 1970. Jean Dixon was wrong most of the time. Her biographer, Ruth Montgomery, admitted she usually made false predictions. Actually, a study was made of some of the top so-called psychics in the world, and it is revealed that they were wrong about 92% of the time. Perhaps one of the most famous to come out of history was a man whose name was Nostradamus. As Dr. Norman Geisler said, his predictions are not amazing. His predictions are very vague. In fact, when he predicts something specific, he was dead wrong. It's said that his most famous prediction was a rise to power of a man whose name was Hitler. But if you carefully read what he predicted, he wasn't talking about a man who would rise to power. He talked about a place named Hisser, and that's a far cry from a man named Hitler. There are people who make all kinds of claims that they can predict the future, that they know what's going to happen, but there's only one person who's actually in a position to do that with accuracy and precision, and that is God. And there's only one book in all the universe that can take you into the future and with pinpoint accuracy tell you exactly what's going to go down. It is the Bible. And whether it is a prediction which is a near future prediction, such as in Noah's day, there's going to come a flood, which there did, or whether it is a far future prediction that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, which he was when it was predicted by Micah several hundred years prior to the event, Whatever it is that is predicted in the Bible always comes true specifically as it is predicted. This is one of the great proofs that the Bible is the inspired word of God. There are over 300 predictions concerning the person of Jesus Christ that were made in the Old Testament, which have for the most part been fulfilled, and some of those predictions were made some hundreds of years before his birth. Now, if ever you want to see or prove or know that God is sovereign over the future, all you need to do is turn your Bibles to Daniel 11. Daniel chapter 11 is one of the most remarkable prophetic chapters in all of the Bible. In fact, Dr. William Newell said, prophecies are amazing and they are meticulously accurate. In the first 35 verses alone that we read, it has been estimated that if you take all of the Hebrew words and everything that's said there, there are 135 prophecies that literally were fulfilled in the first 35 verses that may be absolutely concretely proved by examining history. Now, this is the very chapter of the Bible that caused the heathen philosopher Porphyry to say the book of Daniel was a forgery. Porphyry read Daniel chapter 11, and he said there's absolutely no way that anybody could have known these things before they happened with such accuracy. And yet, Porphyry was proved wrong, because in this chapter... God lays out his plan for Israel under the Persian power, under the power of Greece. He describes the first 69 weeks that would exist for Israel's history. He also presents a plan for Israel during the tribulation period and the rise of the Antichrist. The 70th week of Daniel also will see, Lord willing, next time. And then as you move into chapter 12, you have the millennium. You have God laying out in graphic detail here the history of the program of God for the nation Israel. And what you see when you look at this chapter is, my goodness, God is sovereignly working out his plan for Israel no matter what's going on. 
whether it's positive or negative, he's at work there, and things are ultimately going to end in exactly the way he wants them to end. Now, Daniel's prayer was focused on the nation Israel about the coming Messiah. Babylon had been released from Babylonian captivity by Cyrus the Persian, and Daniel had not seen the Messiah yet, and so he's wondering what's going on. He wanted to know, how's the program of God going to get wrapped up? I've been waiting for the Messiah. He hasn't showed up yet. So where is he? We're now released from Babylonian captivity, but what about the business of the promised land and a king reigning in total righteousness? And so in Daniel chapters 11 to 12, God shows him exactly what's going to go down. Now we can break this chapter or the next couple of chapters down quite nicely for you, at least for purposes of your own study and reading and analysis First of all, in chapter 11, verses 1 to 35, we could say we have prophecies which have already been fulfilled. What I mean by that is they've already been fulfilled at this point in time. None of them were fulfilled when Daniel made the prediction. You have prophecies in the first 35 verses concerning Persia, concerning Greece, concerning Egypt and Syria, and concerning Antiochus Epiphanes and also Syria. Then in chapter 11, verse 36, down to chapter 12, verse 1, you have prophecies which are yet to be fulfilled. They haven't been fulfilled yet to this very day. You have prophecies there concerning the tribulation and the Antichrist. And you have prophecies concerning the kingdom that God will establish. And then in the final verses of Daniel chapter 12, verses 4 to 14, you have final instructions given to Daniel. Now in Daniel chapter 11, there are four divisions of prophecies. You have prophecies concerning Persia, prophecies concerning Greece, Prophecies concerning Egypt and Syria, which includes this man named Antiochus Epiphanes. And then at the end of the chapter, you have prophecies concerning the tribulation and the Antichrist. Now, these prophecies do not contain every event that would happen in history, but God gives us enough data and enough detail to show us that he was accurately working out his program in all of history all throughout time, and he was working out things his way for the nation Israel. You see, ladies and gentlemen, no matter what is going on in your world right now, even if they're troubled times, I believe God is sovereign in your world. I'll never forget a story that I heard one time told by Dr. Charles Swindoll. Dr. Swindoll had a ministry on the East Coast that was brutal. He said it was a nightmare. Everything he tried didn't work. He said, I just got tired of it and I got sick of it. I couldn't understand what was going on, what God was doing. It was that that prompted him to leave and go to Fullerton, California. And when he got to Fullerton, California, God just showered that place with blessings and it just lit up like a Christmas tree. He said, I began to realize that God was at work even in the troubled times of my life. And that's certainly what you see here. Now, there are three main divisions that I want to show you as we work through this. I've given you quite detailed notes. You can peruse them at your own disposal and you can study this further because there's certainly a lot to study in this passage, but we'll try to do it in capsule form for you so you understand it. Division number one is the prophecies concerning concerning Persia, verses 1 and 2. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and protection for him. And now I'll tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong with his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. Now, verse 1 informs us that an angelic visitor was involved in encouraging and protecting Darius in his first year. See, Darius did not realize the satanic 
hatred and hostility that was against Israel, against Daniel and his people. And that, of course, is what led him to that terrible thing where he threw Daniel in the lion's den. And then in the aftermath of that, he's the one who said, I demand that you only worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was this angel that was particularly involved in the whole process of that who was strengthening Darius and encouraging him. Now, What we immediately see here is that God was using angels in regard to his people and in regard to what was happening historically. The obvious purpose of the decree that Darius gave was to favor the Jews so that they could worship God. So you see, ladies and gentlemen, those angels were involved in what was happening in their lives. And when negative things were happening, sometimes they brought encouragement to them. Now, I believe there are angels involved in your world. I believe that more than we know, angels protect us and encourage us. They'll work through a variety of circumstances. When you're at a low point, God will bring certain people into your world. And I don't know how that works in the angelic sphere, but they'll come alongside you and encourage you. Now, the angel revealed to Daniel that under the Persian power, four more kings would come. And the fourth one would be the one who would lead Persia to its downfall. And if you check history, you'll notice that is exactly and precisely what did happen. Because after Cyrus was out of power, then came his son Cambyses, and then came Pseudo-Smyrtus, and then Darius Hustapus, Darius the Great, and then came Xerxes. Xerxes. This was the fourth king, predicted in verse 2. This fourth king will gain more riches than them all, and it's predicted that this is a guy who's going to attack Greece. And this was the fourth king that came into power. He would be the epitome of Persian power, and that is precisely who he was, and that is precisely what he did. He was very rich. In fact, this is the Xerxes about whom so much is written in the book of Esther. He's called in that book Ahasuerus, King Ahasuerus. He gathered more than two and a half million men. He invaded Greece. He was defeated. He was the one who went to war with Greece, and Greece brought him down and brought the Persian Empire down. Xerxes was assassinated in 465 B.C. Now, ladies and gentlemen, when you think about the prediction that is made in verses 1 and 2, this is an amazing prediction, and I'll tell you why. The night that we had a presidential election just a November ago, we prayed fervently for who the president would be, and then you go to bed at night wondering who it's going to be. And you get up in the middle of the night, you watch the returns come in until the wee hours of the morning, and then you get up and you check the television set to see if we know who our new president's going to be, because we didn't know. I'll tell you how accurate this prediction is. This would be like taking 16 presidents over a time period of 16 presidents in a row and naming them specifically and telling exactly what they were going to do. That's how precise those prophecies are in verses 1 and 2. It is an amazing prediction, the prediction concerning Persia. But it doesn't stop there because the second division are the prophecies concerning Greece. You'll notice verses 3 and 4, And a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he is arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority which he wielded. For his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others beside them. Now the prophecy takes a turn toward this guy from Greece who is called a mighty king. And this mighty king is none other than Alexander the Great. It was Alexander the Great who retaliated against Persia. Between the years of 334 B.C. and 330 B.C., he conquered the world from Greece all the way to India. That's 11,000 miles of the world this man conquered. His goal was not only just to conquer the world, he wanted to unite an empire. 
And Alexander the Great was used mightily. He was a mighty king. And God did use him to do at least three things in view of his coming son. And they all begin for alliteration purposes with a word that begins with the letter C. First of all, God used him for communication. It was Alexander the Great that brought the Greek language to the people and spread it all over the world. It was that language that God would have his New Testament written in. Secondly, God used Alexander the Great for construction. It was Alexander the Great who built roads and routes, which ultimately enabled the churches to be established later down the road and for people to travel. And thirdly, and this is also important but oftentimes overlooked, God used Alexander the Great for culture, Greek culture. You see, Greek culture featured freedom of thought. And God was able to use that freedom of thought in order to present his gospel to people who could respond to it freely. But just as soon as Alexander the Great arose, he died from complications of malaria and alcoholism. He died at age 32 in 323 B.C. Now, he had no heirs. Actually, he did have two children whom he was the father of, but those two children had been both murdered, so his kingdom could not be turned over to anyone who would come through his line. His kingdom was divided up amongst four generals. And you'll never guess where those generals were located, toward the four compass points of the world, north, south, east, and west. The first general was Seleucus. He was put in charge of Syria and Mesopotamia. Ptolemy was put in charge of Egypt. Lusimachus was put in charge over Thrace. And Cassander was put in charge over Macedonia and Greece. You have four rulers ruling on four different compass points, north, south, east, and west. Now keep in mind that Daniel is making these predictions about 539 B.C. So he is making these predictions by inspiration of God some 200 years before they happen. Now in the next section of scripture these four divisions of power, only two of them are picked up on because of, there are reasons for this, and the great warfare that existed between two of them, you have Syria and Egypt. And now we're going to get into a section, the third division, the prophecies concerning Egypt and Syria. What you read here in these verses is the biggest soap opera you'll ever read in the Bible. The time frame of years that this covers is about a 150-year gap period, and what you have here is just a lousy mess of things that are going to go down. And they did go down exactly the way it was predicted. General Seleucus and his lineage were the rulers of Syria to the north. And General Ptolemy and his lineage were the rulers of Egypt in the south. Now these verses 5 to 35 are going to pick up on the hostilities between these two powers. You have Syria to the north and Egypt to the south. It's going to pick up on the hostilities between them and their families. And Israel is right in the middle of those two military powers. What you have described here is war going back and forth like a ping pong ball. And the net of it is the nation Israel. You've got Syria launching down here at Egypt and Egypt back up at Syria. And here sets this piece of ground known as Israel right in between. It's like a teeter-totter. One side wins for a while, then the other side. And here sets Israel right in the middle of it. And so Daniel is going to zero in on this whole thing to show us what is going to happen in the nation Israel. These predictions are made, may I remind us, some 250 to 400 years before they happen, and they are very precise and very accurate. Now, there are five periods of time that I want to show you that are described in these verses. First of all, you have 323 to 246 B.C. in verses 5 to 6. Then the king of the south will grow strong along with one of his princes, who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. 
His dominion will be a great dominion indeed. After some years, they will form an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement, but she will not retain her position of power, nor will she remain with his power, but she will be given up along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her as well as he who supported her in these times. Now in these verses, there is a remarkable prediction which came true literally in history. The king of the south, Ptolemy, will become strong, as will one of the princes, Seleucus, who's the king of Syria. They joined forces together to fight the Babylonians. They made somewhat of an alliance together. They were friends, but they soon became enemies. I want you to notice it is stated that the original purpose was to be a peaceful one. According to verse 6, they wanted to form some alliance of peace. And verse 6 is more amazing because it predicts exactly what happened some 250 years before it happened. The king of the South Ptolemy gave his daughter Bernice in marriage to the king of the north, Antiochus Theos. The king of the north then thought that he should accept this gift from the king of the south, so he divorces his first wife, Laodice, and marries Bernice. And then Ptolemy dies, so Antiochus takes his first wife back, who is Laodice, who ends up killing and murdering her husband, Antiochus, his Egyptian wife, and their son. This is a real troubled home here. These are things that were not very positive. Now, this plan was supposed to be a plan to bring peace between these two powers, Syria and Egypt. It brought anything but peace. And there'll never be peace in doing wrong. There's no peace until people want to do what's right before God. And that's what these two powers are still finding out to this very hour because there's still battles going on between these two and Israel is in the middle of it. The second time period is 246 to 240 B.C. That's in verses 7 to 9. But one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place and he will come against their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north and he will deal with them and display great strength. Also their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold he will take into captivity to Egypt and he on his part will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. Then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south but will return to his own land. Now Ptolemy, who's the brother of murdered Bernice, He's ticked off because his sister was killed. So what he says is, I'm going to go invade Syria and I'm going to take them over. I'm going to take over their territory. So he goes to Syria. He kills Laodice. He returns to Egypt with tremendous wealth, including, according to Jerome, 40,000 talents of silver and 2,500 images of their gods. Now, Seleucus of Syria then attempted a revenge attack on Egypt, so he comes down from the north to attack Egypt, but he was forced to return to his own land without success. And it's interesting because he was killed when he fell off his horse. And again, the specifics of the prophecies are absolutely amazing. They're astounding. Now, you have a third time period described here, 223 to 187 B.C., in verses 10 to 19. His sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces... And one of them will keep on coming and overflow the pass, though he may again wage war up to his very fortress. Then the king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north. Then the latter will raise a great multitude, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. When the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cause tens of thousands to fall, yet he will not prevail. For the king of the north will again arise a greater multitude than the former, and after an interval of some years, he will press on with a great army and much equipment. 
Now in those times many will rise up from the king of the south. The violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. Then the king of the north will come, cast up a siege mound, and capture a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand. But he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in his hand. And he will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace, which he will put into effect. He will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it, but she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. Then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many, but a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. So he will turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. Now it's revealed that Antiochus III was going to go to war against the king of Egypt in the south. In the beginning, Antiochus was successful by gaining control of Palestine from Egypt, but later he was defeated on the southern Palestinian border by Ptolemy. According to history, he lost 70,000 soldiers in a battle on the border, and Jerome says, having lost his entire army, he fled into the desert. So he returned back home, and then he regrouped. He wanted to wage war with Ptolemy of Egypt, so he got a few Jews of Daniel's own people to join up with him. And Daniel's own people thought, if we go down there and help him, and we take over Egypt, we'll eliminate Egypt from being a threat to us. But you'll notice it is said in verse 14 that the reason why Daniel's people got involved was in order to fulfill the vision. In other words, you have God working sovereignly and raising up these powers and doing things right in the middle of the promised land. But little did the Jews realize that if they helped Syria go fight against Egypt and then Syria defeated Egypt, it would soon mean that Syria would dominate Israel because this leader would ultimately go into the promised land and he would want to take it. And Israel has always been looking to military accomplishment for deliverance and she has forgot to look to God. And that's her big problem today. She still thinks that through military accomplishment, she's going to have her land, and she's going to get the blessings of God, and God said, you're going to get it through my son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And she's always looked in the wrong places, which is exactly what she did here. Now, it is predicted that another marriage would be organized, and there was another marriage that was organized. Antiochus gave his daughter Cleopatra to be the wife of Ptolemy in 192 B.C. Now, this is not the Cleopatra that you see in Hollywood movies that was portrayed by uh, Elizabeth Taylor, not the one that was the mistress to Julius Caesar or Mark Antony, who committed suicide in 30 B.C. This was a different lady who had the same name. But Antiochus hoped that his daughter would deliver Egypt into his hand because he had given her to the king, Ptolemy, and so he was hoping that his daughter would be able to deliver Ptolemy into his hand, but Cleopatra remained loyal to her husband, which is exactly what was clearly predicted in verse 17. It said that he wanted her to deliver the people into his hand, but she would not take his side. She would not take a stand for him. She stood by her husband. Antiochus wanted more, so he conquered many islands of the Aegean until the Roman army came and put a stop to him. And he actually went back to his own land with his tail between his legs. He was killed while plundering the temple, and he was killed by plundering the treasuries of his own land. Now, ladies and gentlemen, every one of these things are specifically predicted right here, and they came true just exactly as God said they were going to come true. 
Which brings us to the fourth time period. You have 187 to 176 B.C. in verse 20. Then in his place one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom, yet within a few days he will be shattered, though neither in anger nor in battle. Now the son of Antiochus the Great was Seleucus IV, who not only inherited a kingdom but also a great debt to Rome. He was forced to pay a thousand talents annually toward that debt to Rome, and Seleucus sent tax collectors throughout the kingdom, notice carefully, send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. That's what they called tax collectors, an oppressor. And they went through the land there, taxing the people of God, and they sent this man who plundered the temple of Jerusalem. Israel was taxed heavily just to exist in the land that had been promised by God. And just as it's predicted, he didn't live long. Seleucus' reign was short. He died very mysteriously. Many believed he was poisoned by the treasure of his kingdom. But the fact of the matter is, the events of verse 20 went down just exactly as God predicted they would. Now we come to the final time period. 175 to 164 B.C., verses 21 to 35. And there are details given here about a vile person who is going to rise up in history whose name was Antiochus Epiphanes. And we have a lot of information given to us about this man. And the reason why we have so much information given about him in these verses is, first of all, he's the one who would desecrate the temple initially. He is also one who would persecute Israel in a way that they had never been persecuted prior to this. And thirdly, he will prefigure the Antichrist. Now, Lord willing, next Sunday we're going to see a lot of the Antichrist. And you'll see how Antiochus actually prefigured him. Now, Antiochus' rise to power is described in verses 21 to 24. In his place, a despicable person will arise, on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. After an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception, and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm, and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them, and will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. That's how he came to power. He seized the throne that was not rightfully his. He had some military successes. He disposed of the Jewish high priest, and he put his own priest in, the prince of his covenant. He destroyed him and put his own priest in. And then he formed alliances with those areas that were surrounding Syria, Palestine, Edom, Ammon, and Moab, and he used bribery to gain their support. That's how Antiochus weaseled his way into power. His invasion and victory over Egypt are described in verses 25 to 28. He will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army. So the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war, but he will not stand for schemes will be devised against him. Those who eat his choice food will destroy him, and his army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to each other at the same table, but it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. Now, what happens here is there was no real peace, no truce agreement between Syria and Egypt. Everything that they were talking about was based on lies. It's almost like peace talks you hear today in the Middle East, and you'll get the Arabs and the Israelis, and they promise, yes, we're going to have peace, and three days later they have war. That's exactly what you have that's taking place here. He formed all these alliances 
and he went down to Egypt and there was no real peace. On his way back to Syria, he took an opportunity to plunder the temple. And notice verse 28. Then he will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant and he will take action and then return to his own land. On his way back to Syria, he took opportunity to plunder the temple in Jerusalem. Now in verses 29 to 30, you have his invasion and defeat of Egypt described. At the appointed time, he will return and come to the south. That's Egypt. He goes back to Egypt. But this last time, it will not turn out the way it did before because ships of Katim will come against him. Therefore, he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. What happens here is in the second invasion that he launched against Egypt in 168 B.C., he was not successful and he was met by the Romans. And the Romans now would be that which would take over power. They ordered him, you don't fight against Egypt, you turn around and you go home. You just leave him alone. So as a result of that, because he's humbled and he's a proud, arrogant, evil dictator and leader, he decides to take it out on the Jews. On his way back home, what he's going to do is described in verses 30 to 35. On his way back to Syria, he stops in Palestine, and he takes out all of his military frustrations on the nation Israel. He stopped the daily sacrifices, and he erected a statue of the Greek god Zeus in the temple of Jerusalem, and he demanded it be worshipped there, and then he slaughtered a pig. On December 14, 168 B.C., he built an altar to Zeus in the temple, and he offered a pig as a sacrifice, and that is the abomination of desolation that was spoken of by Daniel the prophet. He actually flattered some Jews into believing that what he was doing was right. Verse 32 talks about that. By his smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. He actually flattered many Jewish people into defecting from the true God. But there were those who knew the truth, and they stayed pure, and they rose up, and they did great things, namely the Maccabees and his followers. These were men who said, this is wrong. This is not reverential to God, and we're going to do something about it. And so they killed Antiochus and his representatives, and ultimately they fled into the mountains. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is an amazing section of Scripture in which Daniel is being shown with precise detail what was going to happen from the time that he was going to leave this earth until the time that the Antichrist would rise and the millennium would be in existence. And you may ask yourself, why did God go to all the trouble to put all of this history in his word? Why did God go to all the trouble to go down through here with this maze of history and put this in his Bible? Because, ladies and gentlemen, he wants his people to understand I'm the one that's in control, and I'm ruling over all affairs in humanity, and I'm fulfilling prophecy. I'm working out my plan. I don't care what's going on in the world. Here's what you have here. You have a world of political deceit. You have a world of violence and greed and lust and war. In the middle of that, you have a hatred against Israel. You have powerful people who crave wealth and power. They walk all over anybody to get it, and specifically, they start walking all over God's people. When you read down through the history that we've just gone through, there are murderers and espionage. You have relatives that are killed, one person killing another. Now, when you look at that, you would begin to think there's no way God could ever be in this. 
You would read this historical account and you would say, my goodness, there's no way that God, who's almighty God, can be in control of this. But I want you to notice how verse 35 ends. And he will make them pure until the end time because it is still to come at the appointed time. God is in control of it. And people may think they're getting away with rebellion, but it will come to an end, literally, specifically, just as God says. Now you look at this world that you and I live in, and it's not a lot different than what we just went down through in history. You and I live in a world, there's no respect for authority, whether it be a president or a parent. There's no respect for life, little respect for life. Just abort babies if you don't want them, and who cares? There's no love for righteousness that's going on in this world. In fact, I would say, from what's going on in the world, there's more of a love for sin. You have homosexuality that's flaunted as if it's just okay. It's another lifestyle. It's just maybe a just personal choice issue. It's not an abominable sin issue. You have murders and you have molesters that are in the news constantly. You have those that steal children and these amber alerts that go forth. You have Middle Eastern turmoil. You have economy that's falling apart. You have disease that's running rampant. And now the new one is bird flu that can kill millions of people. And you would say, can God still be sovereign in this world? Well, you read Daniel chapter 11, and God says, I'm in control of it all. I'm right in the center of it. My plan's being worked out. I'm bringing it to my conclusion. And you can be sure that's exactly what God is doing. Dr. E. Schuyler English, who's the editor of the famed Schofield Reference Bible, once told the story of a man on Long Island who purchased an expensive barometer when he unpacked it, the needle appeared to be stuck on the section that was marked hurricane. It made him mad because he had paid a lot of money for this thing. He shook it and shook it and pounded on it. He couldn't budge the needle. So he sat down at his desk and he wrote a scathing letter to the store from which he had purchased this barometer. And on his way to his office in New York, he dropped the letter in the mail. That night when he got home, the barometer was gone and so was his house. The fact of the matter is a hurricane had hit, and that barometer was reading it right. It was accurate. And there is a hurricane of wrath that's coming. And the barometer that tells us that is the Bible. And it predicts it with pinpoint accuracy. Global warming, one world government, Middle East turmoil, church deterioration. It's all there. It's all predicted. It's all spelled out. Wars, rumors of wars, rise in demonic activity, rise as it was in the days of Lot in homosexuality. It's all there. It's all spelled out. And it's going to happen, this hurricane of wrath. And if you're not in a right relationship with God, it's going to hit you. And you better believe it's coming. You may try to dismiss these facts from your mind, but when you look at a chapter like Daniel 11, you have to see God in it. Because God is moving things to his conclusion. He's the one who's in control of the big world. He's also in control of your personal world. And he wants you right with him. He will protect you. And he'll bless you. No matter what's going on. If you're right with him. If you'll yield your life to his sovereign care. May we pray. If you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. Let me be very clear here. There's coming a time of wrath. And I believe it's very near. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, you're going in it. So right now you can settle this forever if you will place your faith in Christ to save you from the wrath of God. In this very private, personal moment, you pray something like this. God, I know I've sinned against you. I admit it. 
I thank you that Jesus Christ died for me. And right now, I place all of my faith in him to save me from my sins. Our Father, what a remarkable God you are. We must, in Daniel, acknowledge that you are sovereign, that you are working out your plan in very mysterious ways. You use things positive and things negative, and yet nothing is out from under the umbrella of your sovereign control. We thank you for this remarkable text in Daniel. We realize, Lord, that when you say something's going to happen, it happens just as literally and as precisely as you predicted it. And so when your word says that there'll come a day when we'll be caught up in the air to meet the Lord in the air, we believe that's going to actually happen, literally as you say. And we believe that moment is very dear. And in the meantime, as we wait for it, I pray that you would enable us to blossom in a focused righteousness that is consistent with understanding the word of God like Daniel did. And we'll thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.